Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams and Tea Podcast, where we spin the jams and spill the tea. And today, we're coming at you with a very special record club. Those of you who have been tuning in to this show for a while now might remember that when Taylor's version of Red came out, Riley, myself, my girlfriend Rhiannon talked about that album, and we also talked about her most recent new release midnights as well and now we are taking the excuse of the momentous release of taylor's version of 1989 to talk about that uh if you're a keen-eyed viewer you'll know that we kind of skipped over speak now and just chalked that up to us not being able to schedule coherently like we will eventually cover that album uh one day uh we kind of have a, a small goal of like wanting to cover all of taylor's albums eventually uh but this is a very very big release a very very big album and we simply could not ignore it in the midst of the cultural conversation yeah, we absolutely had to take advantage of this moment with 1989 because it is, I don't know if it's still Taylor's best-selling album ever. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, Rhiannon. I'm not sure if if it's this or Lover. Actually, the um, numbers are, are so crazy right now. They're just skyrocketing every day on everything. It's so hard to keep up. And that's a very good point, right? It, it's hard to tell at any point in time with, with Taylor with metrics. But, you know, at the time, certainly when this album came out, it was a, a massive, momentous deal for Taylor. So, yeah, and there's a lot of reasons why, why as well, we'll get into that. Uh, it's a hugely significant album, not just for Taylor as well, but just in terms of pop culture in the 2010s as well. Uh, Taylor's ascendance to kind of sit among the you know giants of, of pop music uh, was really kind of completed with this album in a lot of ways and it feels also like the dialogue around Taylor Swift and and the meta aspect of Taylor's career in terms of like how much her music is about her and her career is kind of like reached a sort of zenith with this and then everything after this is kind of continued in that trajectory I'll explain that a little bit more as I get on um, I also think this album is very much in a dialogue with the album that would follow it, but that's maybe a conversation to have more when that Taylor's version comes out. But yes, 1989, a hugely significant album. I want to throw over to our guest and Taylor Swift scholar, Rhiannon, now, just to sort of introduce the record, why it's so significant for Taylor, and also talk a little bit about your relationship with this album as well. 1989 came out at a time where the conversation around taylor swift was very misogynistic and very just insane all over the place everywhere of course it wasn't as bad as it did get which we'll get when we get to reputation but a really big thing about this album is not only her wanting to play around more with all the pop sounds and everything that she did on red but wanting to kind of get away from this oh she only writes breakup songs like she only writes sad stuff so it's kind of her leaping further into that and also playing into the joke around herself. She talks about, like I was telling Riley, there's like a very long prologue in the uh, on the vinyl from Taylor. And it's just a lot of her talking about how she wanted to reinvent herself from top to bottom. Like she cut her hair, she moved to New York, like she did all these things just to become a whole new person, which is something that she kind of talks about a lot, which is where all the errors really come from is... Mm -hmm the constant reinventing herself and how that's like an issue for female singers. But again, that's probably not a conversation for this, but 
yeah i think it's totally relevant and the reinvention as yeah. well comes down to like naming the album after the year of her birth right, right. there's not much more of a way you can kind of make wipe the clay, the slate clean so to speak than doing that yeah it's a really strong aspect of the way that the album's like marketed and, and positions itself from the before you even listen to it yeah exactly and i think it's the last three albums that she has to re-record including this one I think are just so important because you have the year she was born, her reputation and her name, quite literally, that's all that's left. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just, we're in a point where it's like, it's a big deal for all of these, even if you don't necessarily like the albums, because all the albums left are like extremely big moments for her mm -hmm. in her career. And 1989 itself is just, it's up there. It's, it's kind of what really, I think, started pulling more people in because it was such a big turnaround from what everyone had heard. Like I know myself, this is, this album was kind of the point in which I got yelled at for listening to Taylor Swift. So I could not listen to it in a manner in which anybody else could hear because get that pop shit out of my house. So this is one of those albums that like, to me is like super important because I love this album. I love this music. And not only was I not allowed to like listen to it on a other than a low volume and earbuds, but it's when she took everything off of streaming. Mm. So the only way to like listen to this if it wasn't in a music video was like really bad, like kind of weirdly pitched videos on YouTube because I couldn't buy the album. So it's one of those ones where like for a long time, I never really got to experience the album as a whole. So then once I was able to, it was just life-changing for me because of how much that I loved it. Honestly, the only context I think I would really add here is that it kind of feels like the ascendancy of Taylor Swift is really complete with this album because it's kind of the first time she is an artist really feels like she's playing into the cultivated pop landscape. Like obviously right. Red was definitely a turn for her of gearing more towards this sound, but I would still say that overridingly, the Taylor Swift albums before this were largely myopic when it comes to their sound and their construction as records. They're very insular, whereas 1989 sort of feels like it is capitalizing on the pop landscape there are several artists that i feel like have a kind of precedence for this sound and a lot of the writing style one of the artists we talked about this year for example was lana del rey and i feel like a lot of the hype that came from artists like her is like solidified on an album like 1989 where it takes a lot of established tropes sounds and ideas and then filters it through Taylor and then delivers it to her cult of personality while still also capitalizing on the fact that this had massive, inescapable singles. There's a, a good amount of shared DNA, I think, between this record and something like Born to Die. Not to say that they're massively similar, but the emotions that they instill and the sense of grandiosity that they have the feeling of, of it all being larger than life and very played up is uh, a part of the appeal of both to contextualize uh, the only thing i would add at this point is 
with any of the biggest artists in the world and and someone like Taylor Swift became very big fairly quickly in her career as well, especially breaking through Nashville, which really knows how to elevate artists and kind of put them really high up in terms of the the landscape of culture very quickly, as well as, you know, not to mention the fact that this that all happened to her at a very young age. Um, but when you are an artist of that stature, as soon as you become an artist of that stature, everything you do, every album you put out, uh, every kind of next major sort of milestone in your creative output is immediately sort of contextualized by your role and place as an artist, right? So everything, the narrative around every album becomes, you know, whether the artist chooses to kind of lean into it or not, the, the narrative around every album becomes intertwined with where the artist is at, what the artist is doing, you know, the the artist making a statement about themselves, about their career, about their life. And the thing with Taylor Swift is she realized this quickly and became embroiled in, you know, this world so quickly as well at such a young age that so much of the, her peak period art leans into this idea that it's about the artist responding to things that it's the, about the artist in the context of of her career and what she's experiencing and it's natural as well as well if you're an artist that big to be writing songs about your fame and about your experiences and about the relationships that have happened in the wake of that and responding to you know the difficulties of that and the pressures of that and you know the hate that comes with that so every Taylor Swift album, certainly between, I would say, Speak Now being the first major one that does this, basically all the way through to, certainly all the way through to Reputation, but you could argue that that Lover and Folklore, both in their own ways, are albums about responding to where Taylor Swift is at in terms of the narrative. Um, but but really, Speak Now, Red, 1989, and Reputation are the big sort of Taylor Swift narrative albums. Um, but what's interesting about 1989 is that it stands alone amongst all of these things and being a total, full and complete ode to escapism and romanticism, right? So this is the album where Taylor Swift responds to the pressures and darkness and you know and misogyny of, of her life and the way that she's spoken about and the things that she's experienced by shutting all of those things out, by denying them essentially and completely indulging in this romantic, you know, wonderland, no pun intended, of you know, escapism of, of, of everything being, you know, bright and colorful and beautiful. It's as, it's as immediate and instantaneous as soon, as soon as you hit Welcome to New York, right? Which is one of the most like, I would say, over the top sort of romanticist uh, Taylor Swift songs. It's so sort of uh, ridiculous, and but so like infectious and uh, catchy. And, you know, it's kind of really hard not to feel swept up in, you know that the wonder and the the feeling of belonging and the feeling of, of of happiness that that song is kind of about instilling, whether or not it feels sort of real or truthful to you or not. I think as a teenager, as a more jaded younger person, the problem I had with this album and it was really implemented, it was really represented by a song like "Welcome to New York" was how false it all felt, how kind of cheap and tacky and of unreal it felt to me at a time when you know as a younger person I really valued authenticity in every respect. But the big way in which my understanding or my appreciation of this album has shifted is that, you know, I no longer value authenticity above all else, but also I value something as romanticized and escapist as this for being romantic and escapist. I think that in itself is when sold as well as this album sells, it can be truly, you know, life-changing. It can be kind of world-altering. And, it, and it's no surprise that this was the album that really 
took over the world for Taylor. You know, her other albums had individual songs and moments where they were really, really big. But 1989 was the apotheosis of Taylor as a cultural force. So that feeds into, I think, the identity of the album and the appeal of it for me. But before we get into that, and what we are going to do, similar to what we do with, Red, with what we did with Red, is we are going to go through all of the songs. I think it makes sense to go through them all in order, and then talk about the the bonus tracks and vault songs at the end. Before I do that, though, I want to just get something out of the way. Uh, a, a conversation that always comes up with each of these Taylor's version albums, which is how it compares to the original. You know, and then there's inherent in that conversation, there's a reduction of the whole point of the Taylor's versions, which is to kind of create a version of the album that Taylor owns. It's not to reimagine or recontextualize or recreate the album in a new way. It is just to basically duplicate the album as much as possible. This is something that's become clearer and clearer to me with each Taylor's version release. It's early when the whole thing started with Fearless and Red, there was a part of me that was like wishing that Taylor would, you know, change things more just kind of because she had that opportunity. But the more she's done this, the more I've come to understand that that's not at all the point. And the reason why the albums don't change the songs in any really real meaningful or dramatic way is because Taylor wants to create something that her fans can listen to without feeling like they're missing anything. And that's so core to the whole point of the project, right? Uh, nevertheless, the conversation always comes up with when each of these re-releases comes out of, of how have the songs changed? You know, uh, how has the re-recording process altered the songs? How do they compare? Discussions of Taylor's voice often comes up and discussions of uh, the way in which sort of Taylor has replicated these production decisions that are very of their time. And certainly that's true, truest with this album, right? Because this is the album at least of the ones Taylor has re-released so far, this is the one that's most sort of tied to its moment in time in terms of like, you know, how it sounds, I would say, which is not saying it's dated or anything, but well, it is actually saying it's dated, but just not in a negative way. Um, it feels very like a what a sort of early 2010s pop album sounds like. And Taylor's done a great job of replicating that to the letter as she has on her previous records. If anything, I feel like the conversation about this album's mixes being, you know, markedly worse is, is is considerably overstated. I would say there are differences. I'm going to rattle through all of them real quickly, and then you guys can tell me whether you agree, disagree, or whether there's anything else you've noted. The biggest one that has, I think, people have talked about the most is the difference in how style sounds on the new version of the album compared to the old version of the album. Uh, it's a little bit more muted. Uh, if you compare them relatively, it's not a muted song, but it is more muted than the original mix. It sort of just pops a little bit less. It's a little bit kind of more focused on the groove, I suppose, and the kind of it's a bit bassier. It's got a bit more atmosphere in it, and that I suppose is the biggest distinction overall in the production style is that there's less kind of like hard edges and like sort of um, artifacts and stuff. It's all sort of a bit sort of moodier and like more evened out uh, mix wise. That's the biggest way of describing the difference between the two production styles overall, but it's so subtle, but, but it, it is noticeable in style. I think, especially if you've listened to this original a lot, I mean, from my perspective anyway, uh, it's not saying the new version is worse, although I do probably prefer the production of the older song just because that song i think should be as vibrant and 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 just popping as possible the one spot where i think the production is noticeably different 
for the worse is on the song all you have to do is stay the guitar synth overlay sounds buzzy to me on this mix and it's kind of ear scraping a little bit um and the original version doesn't um that's the only moment on the whole record i would say where the new version is, is weaker in sound than the other one there are other differences i think that there are subtle improvements to the point where I can't even articulate them. I just know that, for instance, I think Blank Space sounds a little bit better than it did before. I don't know why. It just kind of does. Uh, Shake It Off, which we will get into when we review the song in full. I'm not going to talk about my feelings on the song. Uh, but I did notice that the pitch on the drums had, was different than it is in the original, just slightly kind of lower in a way that I, I kind of prefer the pitch on the original. Similarly, the strum of the guitar and how you get the girl sounds lower and murkier. In the new version, it's just a little bit less colorful. Again, it doesn't make the song worse. It's just something I noticed. The only other note I have on production is that the synth pads and clean, I, I they sounded a bit more like played in the original version of the song, whereas they are a little bit more sort of spread out in the mix here. Although I appreciate that the little kind of glitches and micro beats in every fourth bar in the song, original song, are kept in this version of the song. And the way the backing vocals are augmented with image and heap towards the end of the song and the new version is awesome that's all i have to say about the production differences between the two albums they are otherwise to me to my ears virtually identical anything you want to add on differences the new mixes sound wider i feel like a lot of it too is probably just because recording technology has advanced since then and i feel like a lot of these are mixed and mastered with stuff like Dolby Atmos in mind. So it takes on a bit more of a, a, a portraiture when it comes to how expansive these can sound. And sometimes uh, they come across as a little bit more muted, like you mentioned, but these are only like in select ideas. There's like, uh, there's some echo delays, for example, in stuff like um, uh, style that are noticeably different from the original, but aren't exactly what I would call like a bad addition to what the song is doing it kind of fills out some of the space very nicely and there are some songs on here that just like i agree with riley just do kind of benefit from the newer production there's a an overall less cohesive feeling to the new production i would say i would also just sort of say that that's only something that really attentive you know audiophiles and music nerds are really going to notice like when you put this on your car stereo and you play it and you sing along to the lyrics, this is probably not something that's going to enter the forefront of your mind. At least I, I don't think it would. It, it hasn't with me so far. So this is all really nerdy stuff, I think. Like If I had to put it in one sentence, I'd say this sounds like, because of course Taylor is working with her regular production collaborators like Chris Rowe and Ryan Tedder and Jack Antonoff. And it sounds like those guys trying to make a record that sounds like a 2014 production basically max martin basically and, and um well max martin only produced a, a, a small number of songs on 1989 but yeah basically true so that's what it's like it's like it, it does sound like someone who's used to producing records in 2023 actively trying to produce a record that sounds like it was made in 2014 and doing a really good job of it but just with slight differences Let's talk about the album itself. Now that we've got that out of the way, now that the, you know, eerie engineering nerdy shit's done and you can, we can kind of put that shit to bed. Let's review this for what it is without comparing it to some other version. 
uh, as I said, it's a massive escapist romanticist fantasy. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep using those two words over and over again because they're the best ones. And everything that works about it works to further that goal of being massive and 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 resplendent and you know aspirational and, and making you feel like you're living in the fuck in a fucking utopian uh, paradise. And everything that doesn't work about the album is whatever doesn't work in service of that goal, basically. Uh, welcome to New York. Huge. Those synths sound absolutely gorgeous. They, uh, you know, pop out of the speakers. I love that little kind of arpeggio that happens at the end of the the synth line. Uh, I love the the stomp hand claps. I love the just the the tone of this. This is probably the single song on this record that I have had the most turnaround on. From being like when I listened as a teenager, thinking, ugh. New York. That's uh, what is she talking about? And now I'm just like, <laughs> now I'm just like, I don't care that it's about New York because it's not really about New York. It's just about feeling as though you're untouchable. About feeling as though you know you are where you belong. With it, and it doesn't even necessarily mean a physical place, but that just that you feel like shit. I have everything I need, whether it's a fantasy or whether it's real or not. And this is the great thing about this album is that the way it's the songwriting works, the way that the soundscapes work, it's all very fantastical. It's all very unreal, but Taylor never shattered. Well, occasionally she does, but for the most part, Taylor never shatters that illusion. She lets that, she doesn't feel like so self-conscious about the falseness of it all that she has to kind of poke a hole in it. Like some more, you know, uh, some indie artists would, she's happy for it to just be this really expansive, silly, sugary bubblegum thing. And just sell that and own that and and make that her truth for this album and you know nowhere is it more like ridiculously over the top than on a song like welcome to new york it's just it's how do you i don't know i don't know how i ever listened to this and didn't get absolutely hyped up with this song it's just so ridiculously infectious now i love basically all but two songs on this album there are stretches on this album that are just like absolutely god tier pop perfection some of the best stuff of the decade and when we get to that we'll get to that um but there are like sequencing choices on here that kind of perplex me like again welcome to new york and blank space back to back is like it it's very strange it's a bit of a tonal whiplash for me just because of how far one is into that escapist fantasy that's you know it's big it's almost operatic it's it's grandiose and then you have blank space afterwards which is like a more comparatively internal darker song where she's playing into a distinctly darker kind of fantasy and the tone is definitely different and i feel like there are overriding similarities that do connect the two and most importantly they are both fantastic songs that i have a great amount of affinity for i'm just kind of unsure how i feel about them being stacked right next to one another on an album like this and that that does kind of keep coming up for me is that elements of this record even when i love it there are aspects of how it is an album of songs that i feel like feels a bit askew i guess here here's my take on the sequencing of those first two songs because i think it's actually quite important that they're first you know the first is exactly as i agree with everything you said like welcome to new york is is immense operatic it's you know ridiculously simple you know and and, and the idea that it's trying to put across you know i'm i'm here where i belong and i'm untouchable and i don't think blank space is a dark song right i don't even really think that it's like has a dark undertone to it to me that song is gleeful 
it's like responding and acknowledging certain aspects of the way that she's kind of been characterized and treated. But to me, there's other songs where she does that and she kind of gets vindictive and, and dark about it. Not, And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but to me, Blank Space is such a great song because it's such a, it's a fuck you song that's just never really leans into the, you know, the, the nastiness. It's just completely like, this is who I am and this is the way that I, my life. And this is the, the, the way that my, that I sometimes have relationships and I love that. I'm and this particular point in time, I, I love that. I, I'm, I'm into that. Whatever you want to throw at me, it's like, I'll just absorb that and make it into part of who I am. And it's going to make me even stronger. The point I think of those two songs back to back is that they're both songs to me about Taylor being unassailable, completely unbreakable. You know, however real that is, it doesn't matter. It's just that that confidence at that level is what they project. Well, the last thing I'll say, I don't want to hog too much on these, but the last thing I'll say about Welcome to New York is that the most baller thing about putting this at the top of this album is it's Taylor Swift, former country artist who has slowly been transitioning into something more mellifluous than just a country artist, leading off the album with the most synth heavy synth pop. Oh yeah. No fucking traces of Nashville anywhere to be seen mm-hmm. a song uh, of maybe the whole album. You're, you don't question for a second that that Taylor Swift is in complete and total possession and control of of her life, of herself, of, of her image, of who she is. And it's exhilarating. It makes you feel like you have that same level of control as well. I guess when I said that it had a darker tone, I guess more musically is what I meant. I mean, even though I still, I don't know, there is something about the the control on blank space that feels a little bit intentionally malicious but like in a in a good way it's just that it the way that they they run together for me has always felt mildly disorienting it's not like a huge complaint or anything it's just one of those things that i feel like lots of synth pop albums succumb to is that when there's like you either have complete uniformity in aesthetic and you risk making an album that's kind of samey or you have to, you know, vary things up a whole lot and just kind of do your best to sequence them all in a way that makes sense to you. And for the most part, I can, I, like, I overridingly can see that. But it, for me, it's just a choice that is always come across as musically a little bit like, whoa, okay. And it's not that. the last time that happens either. I get that. It's like, you know, Taylor's like very two-dimensional and welcome to New York. And it's suddenly with blank space, it's like she's winking into the camera and showing yeah, that, a little bit. that there's like, you know, a, a real like knowing aspect to the, what she's doing. She knows how she's kind of manipulating your perception of her in real time. Mm. Um, let's lean into blank space a little bit more, right? Because this mm. was a big song for Taylor. This was was one of the yeah. ones I remember hearing the most. Uh, 2014 was my uh, like my second last year of of high school and this album was just just everywhere like as well as you know having i had mostly female friends in school at that time as well so i was like 1989 just everywhere and it was like you know in 2014 you were either listening to taylor swift uh or you were hearing fucking megan trainers all about that bass or iggy azalea's fancy and so you would always pick taylor over those i love the swagger of the song i love the way that it's like you know it's got a kind of a bit of a a spacious synth pop feel to it but there's also like these really warm acoustic guitars in it as well i love the the snark and the the just the personality in taylor's vocal performance it's been a long time since i've thought about the lonely starbucks lovers meme 
uh, but it it came crashing back in my wow. mind uh, listening to this song. Um, it really does sound like she's saying Starbucks lovers. And I did think that was the lyric for a long time. Yeah, it's just, it's a really, really fucking catchy and fun song. Um, and again, it shows you can be playful and you can take all of this negative shit about the way you're talked about and you can completely just sap all the negativity out of it and just embrace it as, you know, yeah, this, this is the way that I live my fucking life. You got a problem with it? That's, that's on you. And then you've got Style, which along with one other song, it's like the apotheosis of what this album's going for. Like the, the feeling this album wants to give you, that feeling of like unassailable, like untouchable, like classic enduring you know forever you know the kind that you've that you're living the kind of life and that you have the kind of love that's like always going to be aspirational to everyone in in all of history right that the perfect thing like the idea that you have something that is even in its flaws and imperfections and you know some of the verse lyrics allude to the fact that there's you know not necessarily the healthiest dynamic in terms of relationships between the two characters in the song but that they are aware of that and they embrace that and they just wear their coolness as a a fucking badge of honor basically it's it's such a a fucking awesome song this album really was the start of defining if you loved or hated taylor swift Mm. because of songs like style and how many singles there were and i am of the people that i i would die for every single year and i can't help it my tiny itty bitty misgivings with the sequencing aside will allow me to pull the car into reverse here and say that the next sequencing choice of style and out of the woods is like the best pop sequencing of the decade every choice made in this song was the right choice again that jangly guitar that starts off everything here that's sort of like the bedrock of the song is just a fucking fantastic idea and everything that builds on top of that just serves to make every choice even better the hook here is just absolutely world demolishingly catchy like impossibly good i can't like fathom anyone hearing this and being able to get that out of their head which kind of probably plays into what you said about like this being the album that sort of was the 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 love it or hate it moment for her as a presence because this is like it's so wrapped up i i compared it to um lana del rey uh earlier in the sort of born to die thing i think that style is like this is like a like an antecedent for a lot of the ideas that are in like you know where she talks about referencing things like uh brad pitt or james dean stuff like that like emblems of americana and fame and all of these ideas that sort of crystallize but not in a way that feels like she is directly addressing america or the broader idea that like lana might have gone with like this is more of a a personal story a specific lens to view a relationship through and it has a kind of symmetry with blank space in fact actually the the sequencing choice there is actually equally as smart because blank space and style are basically just two sides of the same coin whereas blank space is kind of a flippant sort of 
taking control of the narrative kind of song, whereas style is playing into how obviously self-destructive a relationship might be, but also in how like glamorous and alluring it is and what makes it enticing in the first place. And not to mention the fucking bridge on style. I'm always in awe of it. It's one of those singles that like, I'm just sort of adamant can't be overplayed just because whenever it comes on, I'm like, Hell yeah, the groove is here, baby. So it's like Taylor's a really smart songwriter. And, and you know, maybe if there's one thing that's uh, limited about this album is that she maybe flexes the the nuance and diversity of her songwriting skill less here than she does on some of her previous records for a purpose. But she's a really smart songwriter and she understands like the appeal of the sort of classic image of people like James Dean. Brad Pitt's a slightly weird choice, but James Dean she understands the appeal of like idealizing and wanting to kind of have that sort of like perfect uh, image, you know, the way that as a celebrity as well, there's a certain level of pressure to conform to those images as well, but also like a joy in being able to like be seen as having that and be seen as living that life, you know, a joy that's aspirational for everyone and anyone to some degree. Right. And so she like, she understands, but she also understands like how, you know, destructive and sort of false those images can be. But like, we all know that we we don't like idealize these sort of perfect celebrity relationships or celebrity lifestyles because we think they're perfect. We idealize them because they are still a form of escape. You know, they're still a form of a freedom. You know, even if you know that actually having that life wouldn't be as nice as maybe it sounds. And, and Taylor knows that too, but she doesn't look down on on people who idealize that and who who get a lot of fulfillment and escapism out of, of imagining themselves having that kind of perfect relationship perfect life perfect image because it's it's human and that's the best thing about the song is that it understands that it's an image but it doesn't like kind of make fun of it or it doesn't kind of make fun of the idealization it, it, it just is a song about how powerful that idealization can be and about how you know Sometimes you just need some shit to get you a million miles away from your life. And it's a song that understands that and just zeroes in on that goal so beautifully. One thing I also want to mention about style is that in the more kind of reserved vocal delivery she has on the verses, it's a great opportunity to showcase how the songs here are definitely a little bit more single-minded than her other records, to be sure. But they all are certainly built a certain way because, you know, it's designed to be the optimal synth pop structure. And this takes advantage of that by showcasing that sense of dynamics. But I love the verse vocals here just because of how she's like leaning into the sort of lower end of her voice a little bit more. So when she says something like he's taking off his coat, that line in particular is something that always got me just because it's like that insinuation, that lyrical idea is like one of the first times where it kind of feels like Taylor is directly addressing the idea of like sexuality, really. It's like it's not overt, obviously, but it's like the idea of a man taking off his coat and you being, you know, alone with this person. It's like that's way sexier and more romantic than like any, you know, on its face sort of declaration of attraction or anything. It's these tiny itty bitty little details that definitely feel like they imply something more. And you, you kind of use your imagination to sort of fill in the gaps here. That's the thing that I think Taylor as a lyricist is best at is that she can lean into very sharp 
evocative lyrical images and ideas, but still leaves enough room for her audience to be able to kind of fill in the gaps and sort of interact with these ideas enough to put themselves into the song, which is also why I think she's her fan base is so, you know, dedicated and loyal is that they have an attachment to these songs because she designs them so that they are easily able to be, you know, latched onto, essentially. I agree. I also add that for me, the sexiest moment on the entire album is in Wildest Dreams when she's like, burning it down. <laughs> this song is also a new disco song. One of the reasons why I feel like style has endured as uh, like a, one of the most sort of agreeable favorites between you know, Taylor fans and non-Taylor fans is how ahead of its time it was in basically bringing elements of, of, of disco and house music back into, you know, full throated pop music. You know, the song, the 2010 song that it shares the most similarities with to me is Ariana Grande's Into You, which they both have. Ooh, a yeah. Of those songs and both those songs paved the way for like Dua Lipa and, mm -hmm. you know, Jesse Weir and all those artists. I I was going to say Jesse Ware like honestly the that guitar that's such a distinct part of this song is like the midway meeting point between like an REM jangle pop guitar and like a Nile Rodgers disco yeah, guitar. It's got that funk feeling to it, right? That's yeah. exactly right. And that's so disco, right? Is disco is so entwined with funk like that. Um, oh yeah. So I had, couldn't go through style without mentioning that. The first leg of this album, just fantastic. All of the songs that we've talked about so far are great. But then you get to Out of the Woods. This is my favorite Taylor Swift song. This is one of my favorite pop songs. This is one of my favorite songs. I've listened to this song hundreds of times. And it is so fucking fantastic. It's all of the idiosyncrasies of style dialed up a notch. Like the, the way this song starts with that weird sort of vocal stuttering. That's that's a I mean, like we plenty of ink to be spilled about uh, the the latter you know era of Jack Antonoff's production career. But my God, when this man cooked, he fucking cooked. Oh, I uh, mean, and, we must remember as well that that Jack Antonoff was in fun uh, before. Yes, the and. You you feel that on a song like Out of the Woods, frankly. But this this song, if I had good words to say about the bridge in style, the bridge in Out of the Woods is like one of the best pop bridges of all time. Like when she builds to that crescendo and eventually hits the, well, I remember, like my soul leaves my fucking body. Like that is the, that is my favorite moment in her entire discography. It is so flawless. And it's like, the enormity, the size of this song is like, I find myself like I've listened to this over the course of the past couple of months. And like, I get choked up at points in this song without ever really hitting to the like super emotional points. Like she does eventually get to a point where she like just uh, describes, you know, being in a car crash with this person and them getting stitches in the hospital and it being like really Rich, emphasizing yeah. the, the dangerous side. Of, of this sort of love affair that they've got. But the idea of escapism is perfectly embodied here, just like, you know, out of the woods, getting away from everything, being alone with someone. It kind of combines the best sensibilities of both Red and this into maybe one of her best sounding songs. It also just really, really reminds me of churches, which if you remind me of churches, you're doing good. You did a good thing. I like it. <laughs> I, I tweeted about this earlier this week. In fact, like if you if you 
get Lauren Mayberry to sing this song and you just say to someone, this is a B-side off of Bones of What You Believe, like, you, no one can yep. question that. Uh, the yep. vocal sample sounds so much like, you know, um, I, I don't say that to be like, oh, Taylor's copying churches. I think it's awesome. What I love about this song coming after Style is that, you know, Style is a song about, you know, this sort of idealized, sort of romanticized relationship and image for yourself that just is perfect in every way. And it's also, you know, it's a song that kind of subtly hints at the the facade. You know, you acknowledge James Dean in a song like that. You know, you're immediately reminded of, of James Dean's death in a car crash. Then you get mm-hmm. a song about being in a car crash. You know, that's an extension of the song because it's coming out of that heat of the moment feeling of, of just being with the only person in the fucking world that you want to be with that particular point in time and just fucking running away. And again, when I say this is an album about escapism, then you've got to have the escape, right? You've got to have the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the reason why I'm not as hot on I Know Places, which is still a good song, don't get me wrong, is that it kind of, uh, what that song goes for is kind of already accomplished so well with this song. I agree with your, what you said about the bridge. Uh, I think it's the best bridge that Taylor's ever written. Um, mm-hmm. not just in terms of lyricism, but just the whole feeling of it. It's one of the most emotional moments on the whole album, to be honest. It's really hard to not look there. I'll be honest, right? I've got no pride. There are many times in this album where I've choked up, uh, where I've got oh, totally. really overcome and we're going to, we haven't even gotten to most of them yet, but this is the first one. Uh, it's just, it's a really intense song emotionally without being super heavy subject matter wise it just makes you feel the danger uh and and i love that so much like i've always loved out of the woods like so much for me that love has like tripled because it was our first surprise song at the era store that's true and any song that you hear as a surprise song you're going to immediately just love a little bit more because it feels kind of special and it feels more intimate because it's what makes your show memorable Mm -hmm. so like i remember when we were there uh I opened my phone and like I saw a notification from Twitter that um, Taylor's childhood best friend Abigail was there. And I looked at Jake and I was like, we're getting 15 tonight. I don't know what the other one's going to be, but we're going to get 15. Like, I just know. It's true. We did. Um, because the way her shows run being so different from people like, I'm going to say it because there is a conversation around Harry Styles with this album that I disagree with and we'll get there. But his shows are never going to be the same because he's more of like a a presence of like interacting with people and whatnot. Whereas Taylor's are a show. They're beginning to end. There is no halting it. There is no changing anything. It is perfected like down to every single moment. So to have the surprise songs is something she'd been doing like since the beginning of her tours. It makes it so special and it makes it just that little bit of difference for every single person. So overall makes me love the song even more. And make me love that I finally have a Taylor's version for it because for a few months I was like, oh, I'm one of the only people that have like heard the Taylor's version of this song. So it was really cool to me. Another thing that I really like about it, we're going to go into the lyrically of it. It's one of the first times she uses this kind of reference in a song of black and white and screaming color. Oh, it's one of my favorite lines in the song. Yeah, great. It's something that she also kind of references later in folklore again and a couple other times here and there. But it is a very just like point of the difference between like, here is the whole world and like, here is the whole world with you. And uh, it pulls me in in a way that I just I, I can't I can't describe. I love it so much. One of the like little bits of of special source that this song has is the understanding that 
danger can be thrilling, right? Oh, yeah. But danger, like, you know, obviously you don't have danger if there isn't a threat, right? If there isn't some risk of, of things completely collapsing. But that possibility that that the feeling of being in that situation of, of having to to run or drive for your life right that that has a thrill of all of its own and it's not something that you know should be papered over or that should be like you know it, it, that that is uh, a real part of, of that feeling and and it's one of the moments on the record where you have the most kind of dynamic emotional expression i think because of how she leans into the danger of that and how the danger accentuates the feeling of, of attachment and thrill and love that she has in that moment um there's just lots of beautiful little lyrical um things in the song that are so tailored but are also so they're so um vivid right like um we decided to move the furniture so we could dance baby like we stood a chance like that's a lovely uh turn of phrase just the little details she loves to zero in on, like, you know, your necklace hanging from my neck the night we couldn't quite forget. Uh, and then the entirety of the bridge, which we've already talked about, which is just unbelievably emotional. You know, when you started crying, baby, I did too. But when the sun came up, I was looking at you like, just stop. He's already dead. So, yeah, we've kind of talked about this run of songs now that's just sort of like three ma three massive singles, you know, not none of which is the biggest single. Uh, which we're That's about true. to get to very soon, um, but all of which are Titanic and just carry this massive momentum forward that makes the album feel so undeniable. Uh, all you had to do is stay is kind of a, okay. There's a few songs in this really that I think are kind of underrated, although I don't have much of a sense with um, the the Taylor Swifty community. You know, I, I'm sure there's probably no underrated songs. I was gonna say, you don't get to talk about track fives. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> That's I'm true. Sorry. Uh, but yes, <laughs> All you have to do is say, I'll just say this. Uh, it's a song that I like a lot more than I thought I did. Yeah. yeah. Listen yeah. to this this week, the more it's got really, really stuck in my head. My tiny complaint about the mix on the new version aside, it's a really catchy, fun pop song. Yeah, it's less sort of, um, you know, massively totemic than the ones right before it and the one right after it. But it's a really great deep cut song, right? Like it's a really great song that just keeps the momentum up of the album, you know, so that you can sort of keep in that atmosphere and that vibe. I love the songs in this record where that one of Taylor's biggest, I, I think, sort of aesthetic goals for writing or conceiving songs in this record is to have choruses that just really pop. And yeah. this is a song with a chorus that really pops. And it's just really, really catchy. And she has a great little rhythm on her vocal. And I love it. I don't have complicated thoughts. I just think it's a really cool song. Um, yeah, that, that's more or less kind of how I feel about basically all of the deep cuts on here, because this is an album that's so consumed by the singles that that's, you know, unless you're a hardcore Swifty, it's probably easy to forget just how like not only how good the deep cuts are, but how like catchy and how like any lesser pop star probably would have used the deep cuts on here as singles like because all you had to do is stay this could be a perfectly acceptable single choice for most other artists like i could absolutely see that being the case and it kind of stops the relentless like breakneck pace of the first half of the album so yeah it's not as totemic but i feel like it's kind of necessary for the album's pacing because otherwise it risks just like hitting critical mass of saturation of just like being so big that it's kind of overwhelming. So I learned to appreciate this a lot more than I used to. Yeah. Also, like we have to acknowledge Taylor's sequencing 
skill because of course there are lyrics early in the song that reference you know all i know is that you drove us off the road we're picking right up from out of the woods oh yeah it's like it you know it's not continuity it's not that the album has a continuous narrative across it but that there's enough moments where it feels like things are being tied together like that also just as an aside uh this is uh this song uh greater than stay 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 in terms of stay songs (laughs) i had to put that in there yeah i think i agree probably not a diss i just thought you know taylor's Taylor's written two songs where she says stay an awful lot it's probably other ones yeah i i think i mixed them up in my head before i listened to this and then i was just like oh this is what this sounds like (laughs) okay well i'm the number one stay 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 stand and i will just be quiet (laughs) good songs both good songs shake it off oh boy i've been so excited to talk about this all week for a number of reasons have you yeah i i genuinely have been because i mentioned that i forget you're a sadist with your opinions sometimes (laughs) i mentioned that welcome to new york was the song that i had the biggest turnaround on that's still basically true but it's kind of also not true because i'm gonna make a bold statement now and i'm gonna say i'm not gonna go as far as to say that i think shake it off is the best song in this album it's not the best song in this album the 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 rap verse i think still probably shouldn't be in it although i have kind of it, it kind of is charming now in a way that it never used to be to me but um i just and i, and I understand because i know what jake i know what your angle is going to be on this is, is the whole like having to hear it 500 times in retail and i'll let you oh have, i've i've got other things i've got other I'll, things i'll let you have that but I just want to just take a moment to appreciate, you know, outside of Taylor Swift, although there's a whole angle with um, Taylor herself and why it's significant that this is Taylor's biggest song and what it's about and all that sort of thing. I just want to appreciate for a second what an absolute masterclass in pop song craft this is. That fucking hi-hat, that fucking hi-hat, that, that shit is heroin to me. As soon as that drum beat comes in, it's like, oh my god, this is. Listen, I maintain, I maintain that 1989 is one of the albums that made me be like, man, I really, I really want to join percussion. I want to play drums so fucking bad. Like this, it's this. Just, I want to be able to, I want to be able to make that sound with the high. Exactly. Yes. Yes. That. And also, just like, again, I'm not trying to be Rick Beato here, but just like the way you can hear the room tone. Of, of where that's recorded is just like such a nice little flavor it's like got this earthiness to it again the pitch is surely this is the when the levy breaks snare of pop <laughs> again the pitch is shifted in the new version i like the original that's fine though it's just a bit different so yeah that drum beat to me is one of the most iconic things about this whole album that i could listen to it on a loop for hours so scratches my brain in a way that i just i i love it mm-hmm. i'm sorry then you've got the you don't have to be sorry i'm i'm the one here with the lamest opinion possible (laughs) it's okay hey look it's okay then you've got the the, those processed horns those really kind of uh i mm, oh they just sound so like crunchy in a way that i really really love um i know (laughs) and i can understand hating them i can understand hating the way those horns sound i definitely can but to me they've got like this sort of crunch to them that really like is a nice compliment to the drum beat i love the little inflections that taylor has and i'm so glad that she's kept all of them in the re-recorded version the most the best one is i never miss a beat i love that i love the way she does that and i love you know and the the way that she sings that 
they don't see and that's what they don't know i love the sass and the performance i don't love the bridge the the rap verse although i i, I commend taylor for committing to it in her re-record uh if i were her that would be the thing i would be most tempted to in some way change because it is you know it's kind of cringe but also this is the thing where i was talking about earlier about how sometimes taylor's weird like quirkiest most idiosyncratic things that don't necessarily work well ultimately end up being part of her charm and i just think it's this album and this song is kind of the perfect sort of template for that charm to work um even if i do kind of kind of tune out a little bit in the verse um but yeah i i just wanted to be on the on the on the page saying that um i used to be an edgy person who thought Taylor's there were a lot of parodies and stuff but I have come around on the song so yeah this album was so big and so inescapable that you're just going to hear the singles for it everywhere but I maintain that my affinity for the songs on here was not diminished whatsoever on all of the other singles like the the song on here I've heard the most by far is blank space uh, and that song's never like, in fact, I only think that song's gotten better with time. Like I I sort of thought it was like, okay, this is a cool, catchy pop song when it came out. And now I'm like, no, this is fantastic. This is well written. It's dynamic. I love it. Shake It Off just feels so like. And this is weird, too, just because I'm like Riley and that I've kind of 180 on my opinion on a lot of Taylor Swift's music that I sort of was ambivalent on earlier in my life because a lot of her, again, quirky eccentricities and cringy moments are things that I now find incredibly charming and vulnerable and interesting in a way that a pop star like Taylor Swift has no business being. Like a lot of, again, a lot of the appeal of albums like Midnight's, for instance, or like Taylor Swift, one of the biggest pop stars in the fucking universe right now, is making an album where she's self-consciously being kind of a loser about things. And I, I get it. I like that. It's it's interesting to me that that's being played up. She's not this untouchable goddess. She's she's not like trying to put herself on a pedestal. I like that. It's cool. And here, I think that paradoxically, it ends up being kind of like, it, it's like it, it just goes so far in the other direction that it ends up almost accomplishing the same thing. And that it's just like, I'm just going to shake it off where it's just like, it doesn't, these things don't bother me. It's a bit of a thou doth protest too much sentiment within the song where it's just like okay i get it this was in a period where you were under some immense undue scrutiny but making a song about how no one's criticisms are bothering you and then turning that into a hit lead single on the biggest album that you ever make it's a bit it's it's a bit weird but that's not why i dislike the song (laughs) i dislike the song just because like everything about the way that it sounds it's like i'm I just feel like I'm in like a fifth grade classroom and like somebody's like, like the teacher puts on a song for all the kids to dance to because they're cool. And I will and, be dancing. And look, I, I, I get it. But for like, I am a fifth grader and I am happy about it. There's the, the horns on here sound weird and buzzy. And I don't, I don't really like the way that they actually, I kind of think that they sound even worse on this version. Everything about it feels so artificial. I don't like, the thing is, is that when Taylor leans into her cringier tendencies and I get along with them, it's because they're genuine. It's because they're not projections. It's because I can understand them and identify with them. Whereas this feels 
I don't want to say dishonest, but it kind of feels like, again, she's trying to overcorrect with all of this stuff where it's just like, I feel like specifically Blank Space is a song that masterfully harnesses all of the things that people were saying about Taylor Swift in a way that makes a really compelling song. And on Shake It Off, she's basically doing the same thing, but opposite tonally. And it just, it's it rubs me the wrong way in, in all the worst places. It's just like, it's it, it's just something that every time I hear it, I kind of like it a little bit less. And that's the thing. I don't hate this song. I just wish that it wasn't everywhere. Because it's like, I would say that it's a perfectly average song under most circumstances. But the fact that it's just been beaten into me over the years, I'm just, I, I can't do it. I completely understand your perspective, Jake. And I don't think it's disingenuous to feel that way. It is a different song. You know, it it sticks out aesthetically on this album. I don't think it's ill-fitting. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it feels like the album, it feels like a natural climax for a lot of what the album's been building towards, even if it's a little bit vague. What, What I'll say is that, you know, Blank Space is a great song because it's actually about Taylor shaking it off. And you have a kind of specific idea of what she's shaking off. But you also feel as though, you know, she sells it really, really well because it's this disaffected sort of ironic, you know, you can't actually hurt me. Um, Whereas Shake It Off is a song about shaking it off. That's it. Uh, What is Taylor shaking off? Uh, People don't like her dating habits and she has some exes she doesn't like. And that's it. And that's not, I'm not saying that's insubstantive. How dare she? I'm not saying that's insubstantive, but I'm just saying that, um, yeah, there's admittedly like, I suppose less to grab onto and if you want to kind of like re- be able to read into the song and, and and whatever. But like the other reason it's called shake it off is because you shake the shit off while you are listening to it. It is a fucking dance floor filler. Uh, admittedly, you know, the era in which it was filling dance floors was, was when I was a, you know, a cringy sort of 17 year old, but it is a fucking great song to dance to. It's really hard not to groove when you're listening to this. And again, part of it comes from just how immediate the rhythmic aspect is, but also just like, yeah. And yeah, the, the refrains are repetitive and, and kind of vague, but that's because they're kind of built to sort of slot into the rhythms and grooves and not kind of take away from them too much. I will say I detect a slightly teensy tiny little bit less stank on the this sick beat in this version than the original version. I don't approve of that. That line should be delivered with as much stank as humanly possible. Uh, <laughs> but that's all. Um, yeah, I just I, I listened to this album in the car the other day and I was just like, I, I this is maybe sounding embarrassing, but I genuinely felt euphoric when this song was playing. <laughs> It was like, oh, that's okay. Amazing. That's a feeling I wasn't expecting to get from Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. I will at least call it this. In, in my eyes, it's a failure, but it's an admirable failure. I cannot say the same thing about the other song on this album that I don't like. All right. So let's talk about Bad Blood. Um, this is the worst song on 1989, including their bonus tracks and vault tracks. I don't feel like that's even controversial. I don't hate it the way that I know a lot of people do. And this is not me trying to score points or anything or me trying to capitulate. There is a light through which I can see this song as charming. However, that context is absolutely not on the album 1989 by Taylor Swift. We are thematically, content-wise, in so many respects, 
it is a sore thumb. Like it is a complete mood killer foot on the brakes, just completely taking me right out of the experience. And I'll get into why that is. There's more, more meaningful reasons for why I don't like the song being on this album than just, it's a bad song. I think it's a mediocre song that has some bad decisions in it, but you know, it's, I'm not going to debate the semantics. I want to hear from you two as well. Cause it's a, it's a notorious song, right? A lot of people talk yeah. about the song as being one of Taylor's worst songs. I'm curious, like what, Rhiannon, I'm curious, like, what is the the Swifty consensus on this song? I know that so much of it is embroiled in the whole beef aspect of it, um, but I'm curious to see, like, is this a song that that Swifties are divided on, or is it just like what what kind of reputation, so to speak, does this song actually have? Because I don't have a clear picture. It's not one I see a whole lot about. I think the biggest thing that I see is the difference between people that prefer with or without Kendrick Lamar like honestly until Jake started talking about not liking it I didn't realize there were that many people that did not like it I think it's fine I've never really had a problem with it I think the Kendrick Lamar version is shit and I I will openly tell anyone that uh something I was going to mention earlier when Taylor performs it she has a lot of chants that the crowd does and one of them is the you forgive you forget but you never let it go when she dropped the uh, Taylor's version of it with Kendrick Lamar, there were people on Twitter that went, oh my god, he said the chant. <laughs> because he didn't realize that it came from it. Uh, it made me laugh so hard. Everything about Kendrick's performance on his version of the song is fucking hilarious. It's, it's so, so funny. funny. <laughs> you know, it like, reminds me... earlier. It's one of those songs where like, it was one of the very few that I could listen to and it not sound like it was coming through a dumpster. Um, <laughs> so like, I don't know if I, I, I don't know if anyone else had this experience of like having to listen to songs on YouTube that were like purposely no, I... distorted so that they wouldn't get like copyright claims. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's how I had to listen to 1989 for a very long time. And <laughs> as, as a woman enjoyer, I also as much as I hate the Kendrick Lamar version, the music video is kind of cool. So uh, me as a kid was having a lot of fun with that unknowingly. But yeah, I don't really have any like big issues with it. I think it's fine. I, I get it like sticking out on this album and not really fitting. Like I can understand that. But like I don't have any like big complaints, I guess, which may m- makes me the outlier. And that's fine. I don't really care. I'm not like a super fan for this song. There's a weird way in which it's kind of charming how silly it is. I just would enjoy it more if it wasn't in the context of me listening to 1989 and then just this booming song about being like bratty and vindictive comes up. It just doesn't fit the mood of the album at all. No, I definitely get that. Like I just, it literally comes back to it being one of the only songs I could listen to. So it has like a place in my heart of one of the songs that I was able to enjoy at least somewhat. Mm. So I think my brain is so tied down to that that it doesn't really want me to think about any negative feelings towards it because it's like it's 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 a core memory like it's a it's a piece of my childhood and like my love for Taylor Swift and having to deal with my bitch of a mother so it it just it is what it is I don't really care either way there is a long and storied history of bitchy diss songs and they are like you know they're it's an important 
you know subgenre of pop music to exist. Uh, I will say, I um, I I prefer the Kendrick version, if only because I don't like the song very much, and Kendrick being in there as well just kind of makes it a little bit funnier for me. Um, yes. Yeah, also, it just like it just reminds me of that amazing clip of, of Taylor singing backstreet backseat freestyle in her car, which is one Lovely. of my which is one of my favorite things that she's ever like posted. I don't even know where, where that originally came from, but just like, you know, people make fun of her for for that or whatever. But I'm just like, Taylor is all of us listening to backseat freestyle. That's the whole point of that song, is you should sing it in your car. That's kind of the whole thing that Kendrick's doing in the song. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Jake, why don't you tell us about your bad blood with bad blood? Let me, before you say that, because I, I think that also that makes me realize why I prefer without Kendrick Lamar is because I could not listen to the version without Kendrick Lamar. That well, probably helps. Have fun. Anything I could possibly say about this is kind of rendered inert when the biggest problem is simply, you know, we got bad blood. I this song hook so much every time i hear it it just sounds so atonal and jagged and weird and i'm just like why this is an album that is littered with positively magnificent pop song hooks just some of the best of the decade and then here we have this bad blood i mean it's like listening to a fucking drone it's 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 so monotonous and again if i thought that shake it off felt a little bit out of place it at least from like a from a macro perspective i at least understand what it's doing there and the purpose that it serves within like the track list and how it kind of calls back to other sentiments and in other songs whereas it's just like here's a random song about this beef that i have and i'm just kind of like okay if i thought that should have been a single that doesn't isn't connected to an album this just just this needs the full annexation treatment i don't know what out like it, i mean that's the thing is that when i commonly cite this is my least favorite taylor swift song um and as someone who also doesn't really enjoy reputation i'm like this is reputation without the commitment to being reputation like a lot of that album's biggest misgivings and people's biggest problems with reputation which i do share frankly are that it is kind of an aesthetic nightmare of an album however it commits to that aesthetic nightmare. Like there isn't a point at which I feel like that album kind of half-asses itself. However, this is kind of like it's stuck in between trying to be the glitzy sort of shiny synth poppy song and the, you know, vindictive sort of, you know, I'm pissed at this person is time to tear him a new asshole song. And it just ends up having the advantages of neither. And I just, it, it perplexes me on many different levels. I feel like musically, it's just kind of, I can't even describe what this well, song is actually like musically because it's just so nondescript. It's just like this booming kind of like, bah, 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 bah. and I don't it's a, like, it's a cheerleader, like stomp song. Like it's a song for the gym, right? Like it's a song for you know it's got that whole like um the, the vocals are like very sort of like cheerleader vocals to me and the stomps and the percussions very like kind of stomping on the gym floor sort of thing uh, i i think the song does a decent enough job of committing to what it is it just happens to be a very sort of 
empty sounding thing. Like it's just the thing that she's going for, I think, is a thing that sounds so much more weirdly kind of minimal and spacey and sort of empty compared to what the rest of the album's doing. In that sense, I think it would fit in really well on Reputation. <laughs> but, See, that's um, the thing, though, is that I find it, I, I agree with you. I do think it's a bit too minimal. And Reputation's an album that's like insanely maximal in very different ways than 1989 is maximal. But it feels like this just, for me, I just, I can't picture it being anywhere where it makes sense and then there's just the 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 actual like i don't know i i find the petty kind of spitefulness on here to just be to me as an outsider looking in i just can't fathom why this was worth making an entire song about Sometimes it just confused fun to be a bitch i no i i reputation is all about how fun it is to be a vindictive spiteful I, bitch sometimes. I I get that. But when it sound <laughs> but but bad blood does not sound fun. It sounds like like the low end on this is just like really bizarrely pronounced on an album that doesn't really do that all that often. And I just there's there's just nothing about the song that really works for me. I kind of I do agree with Riley is that I prefer the version with Kendrick, even though his verse kind of sucks. But it's like funny. So bad, dude. It's, That's the it's thing. Such a bad Ken verse. Ken Kendrick's Kendrick is an anomaly. He was OG like DOC. Remember that? My TLC was quite OD. I D my facts. Now POV <laughs> of you and me, similar Iraq. That's my favorite. When he compares the beef to the US and Iraq, that's the funniest fucking shit I've ever heard in my life. Kendrick is an artist who, I mean, we've broken down his entire discography. We have an immense fondness for him. Without Kendrick Lamar, I would not be the music fan that I am today. I, I would not, like, simply put, like, To Pimp a Butterfly is one of the most important canonical albums to me in existence. And also, in the 2010s, I don't know what the fuck Kendrick's deal was, but every time he appeared as a feature on a song, he kind of, like, he kind of just you know what? sucked. <laughs> I don't know what was with it, but any time he appeared on a pop song in the 2010s, he was just like, fuck it, man, give me the check in the mail. <laughs> he just phones it the fuck in so hard, it's like... You know what this <laughs> Kendrick verse reminds me of? I actually think that... It's uh, the one it reminds me of is actually a really good verse. It's just that people don't think it's a very good verse because it's on a comedy song. But it reminds me of um, uh, the Lonely Island YOLO, his verse on that, uh, where he's talking <laughs> about, like, you know, how you've got to, how um, you've got to like look out. He, he's giving like stock tips and shit. It's really funny. Like he really leans into the bit on that. Um, and it's so funny that like this song. His verse came out in May of 2015, which was after the release of To Pimp a Butterfly. So, like, Good imagine God. being a Kendrick fan at that time, and you've been, like, soaking into Pimp a Butterfly, this massive jazz rap opus, and then the very next thing you get from Kendrick is this verse on this Taylor Swift song that he probably recorded, Look, like, a year earlier. Um, man was probably a bit tapped out. <laughs> totally oh. understand. You know, here's the thing. If the rest of the song matched Kendrick's very flippant attitude, I would undoubtedly like it more. I definitely, last thing I'll say is this. I cannot even fathom thinking that this song is worse than Look What You Made Me Do, but to each their own. 
my thing about this is, and it depends on how you define a beef song. You could you could make the argument that every breakup song Taylor's ever written is a beef song. I wouldn't go that far, but like, I um, but the, a lot of those songs where Taylor is kind of vindictive and and angry and kind of read reading the receipts, so to speak, are <laughs> like you know it's easy to get easier to get invested in those because there's some sense of personal stakes. Whereas the Taylor Katie beef never really felt real. I mean, a lot of pop it's star beefs insane. never really do felt real, feel real. So the whole song doesn't really feel like there's any kind of actual angst in it of any kind there's very little stakes to it like i don't really under like i wish i understood what the bad blood was about beyond vague like you did a bad thing to me so now i'm mad about it also by all accounts no one fucking likes katie perry anyway as a person so i'm gonna (laughs) there's isn't it funny though that like i think you could easily make an argument that at the beginning of the 2010s the idea that Taylor Swift would completely, completely eclipse Katy Perry in terms of world conquering success is kind of a foreign idea. Like that idea is kind of strange because like at the very beginning of the decade, Taylor still really wasn't in her imperial era quite yet. So I feel like a lot of people would have expected Katy to have ca- like carried her success a lot more, well, successfully than she actually did. And, you know, then she didn't. Well, the thing with Katie is that her rise to fame was a lot more fast, whereas like, oh, yeah. like she came, she she got from the bottom to the top really quickly. Whereas Taylor like worked over the series of two or three albums to kind of you know move herself in that direction, establish herself, and kind of build a momentum. And when you build a oh, momentum, yeah. it's a lot easier for that momentum. It's like physics. It's like Newton's laws of physics, right? You build up yeah. momentum. That momentum is more likely to be sustained for a longer period of time. Whereas if you just like yeah i can't believe i brought up isaac newton in a taylor swift review let's move on um <laughs> wildest dreams is my favorite song on this album i didn't Great I, so i mentioned earlier that style was one of two songs that feels to me like the apotheosis of what this album is going for this really wide-eyed romantic sort of pursuit of this breathless perfection that makes you feel like you're living in a paradise essentially and your life is perfect and you have this love that's unassailable you know, that's obviously a fantasy right whether or not you're aware of it's of whether it's a fantasy whatever it doesn't matter all that kind of subtext and shit doesn't matter when you can create something and, and live inside of a feeling that makes you feel as boundless as you've ever felt right and style is a song that does that but wildest dreams to me is is like the song that is the apotheosis of that when I think of like like romantic songs, I don't just mean like romantic in the love sense, but I mean romantic in like the idealized, idealistic sense. So like this is romantic in both senses. This song gives me a physical reaction, right? This song is like it it is what it feels like to be so completely and utterly taken away by your feelings, by the perfection of, of the state that you're in with this person, even if it's just a moment in time. Uh, and, and even if it's not real, right? And and the 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 one of the most powerful things about Wildest Dreams is that it doesn't matter whether it's real or not. It doesn't even matter if you know it's not real. What's what matters is that it's what you're feeling, right? And and you're you're connecting with this other person and and Oh god, the song is just stunning. It's a complete showstopper. I lack the vocabulary to describe what this song does to me. 
Bree and I were actually at a wedding very recently where the uh, song that the bride walked up to was a string arrangement of this song. Uh, so that's that's another context in which it makes a whole lot of sense. But uh, also the strings on this song. I mean, my God, holy shit. Like the, when she actually gets to the chorus refrain on here, it is just Mwah. this is maybe the biggest this album sounds sands out of the woods and it's just like it's exactly what i need after a middle stretch that doesn't fall off necessarily but like is a little bit shakier than what comes before it for me and like puts me back on even ground it's like i mean like this is one of the core essential taylor swift songs to me like one of the absolute best and one of the ones that i feel like 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 style stands as an emblem to her songwriting craft. There's a, you know, a devastation, I guess, that kind of underpins it because, you know, the framework of it is a fantasy. Say you'll remember me. Yeah, the framework is a, of it is a fantasy. But also, like, it's not at the end of a relationship. It's it's connecting with someone and then imagining the end and imagining the mm. last moments. Being the kind of person who is so, you know, has been through this routine the, the relationship routine so many times and has had this feeling of falling in love so many times that they're unable to you know not imagine the end but you know it, it's not necessarily a source of sadness for them it's a source of like i don't know just of release of of of, of like knowing that whatever is about to happen between you and this other person you are going to be leaving a mark on each other's lives for the rest of your life like the feeling of seeing someone and knowing right away that no matter what happens between me and this person, no matter whether it goes the distance or not, I'm going to remember them for the rest of my life. And they're going to remember me for the rest of my life, for the rest of their life, excuse me. And that's a powerful feeling. There's very few songs, I think, that are actually about that specific moment when it comes to, you know, falling for someone or, or connecting with someone of, of, that feeling that no matter what happens, my life is never going to be the way that it was before this moment. And their life is never going to be the way before way it was before that moment either. And that's key. The fact that it's like knowing that both of their lives are going to be different. It's not just, oh, this is going to fuck me up forever. It's this is going to fuck both of us up forever. Style is a song about being kind of drunk off of this feeling of liminality between two people. And this is like, the hangover that comes afterwards where you know you kind of realize that but it still maintains a sense of like you said romance that makes it feel dressed up and alluring that even though you're confronting a very stark reality it still doesn't make it seem bitter or even unpleasant it, it's just sort of acknowledging the alchemy of the experience of life the iconic part of the song is it's like the sound of words failing you with that sound that she makes it's like it's that inside of that is all the years of being fucked up by this being unable to stop thinking of this and, and every time you close your eyes and you go to sleep you see that you see this person or you remember this person or you have this whether you want it or not and it's just all captured in that noise she makes man it's just fucking it's too much for me i haven't listened to them back to back so i can't say this for sure but for some, like, I like the version on the album more than I like the single that she released during the Red Era. Oh, yeah. It's it's an improved version, for sure. It's like an improved Taylor's version of a Taylor's version. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's it kind of well known that that version that there was something wrong with that initial version. But it messes my head. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, I think it also like coming back to that initial release of the single. It is very funny to me because I think that is the first. It was the first Taylor drop that we were like in the same room when mm-hmm. it happened. <laughs> oh, I, I I remember me like crying. She was her heartbeat. Anyway, yeah, it's beautiful. Everything about it is beautiful. It makes me happy. I, when I first revisited it this week, I was like, oh, I love this song, but like, I, I wonder if the production is a little bit too floaty for it. And now I'm like listening to it crying and thinking like, of course, <laughs> it, of course it's floaty because it's about like, you know, a fantasy. It's about something that's uncertain. It's about something that's wishful. It's about something that's just exists inside someone's mind. There's no, it's not grounded in the song. Mm-hmm. So of course it sounds the way that it does. It makes you feel like you're dreaming and flying through clouds and shit. It might be my favorite Taylor Swift song. I, I don't know. I, I'd have to really sit down and think for a while. It's um, up there. It's an amazing Taylor Swift song. And most importantly to what we're talking about today, it is like one of those things that's just a beating heart of, of why this album is as beloved as it is. Because oh, yeah. what it, th- this song is so representative of the feeling this album goes for. How you get the girl. This is not one of my favorite songs on the record. It's fun. Uh, it's got like a really sort of punchy chorus, which is probably the best part about it. That the whole rhythm she has, the kind of she has is really, really catchy. It's funny. Like it's kind of one of the most shallow songs on the album in terms of like, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, you see it all the right things and that's how you got her. And you see it all the wrong things and that's how you lost her. And then you see all the right things again and you got her back. Yay. And like, that's kind of fitting for the fantastical world of this album. So I can't really rag on it for that too much. Cause you know, this is not a record where like real world, real life complexities of relationships and things are irrelevant. It's just not the point of this album. Uh, the point of the album is to kind of, you know, uh, let all that shit fall away. Um, so the, uh, the song fits, it's just kind of a little bit, maybe it's just cause I'm so emotionally bulldozed after wildest dreams. Uh- I was going to say, it can't really help but feel a little bit deflating after Wildest Dreams. It's another one of the sequencing choices on here that I personally wouldn't make. But like, I, I kind of think it would be better if Wildest Dreams and How You Get the Girl are switched. Because Bad Blood into Wildest Dreams is already such a fucking insane shift. And then back down to How You Get the Girl, it's just like, whoa, okay, lots of stuff happening here. So I feel like maybe there was a better way to segue that, perhaps. But... I still like the song. I it's it's one of those songs that I just I want to scream from a rooftop and just like ah I don't know I can't explain what it is about it that makes me feel that way. It's just I mean it's 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 banger. It's it's, a banger. It's a banger. It just if there are no how you get the girl enjoyers assume that I am dead because I would die for this song. Nah, real. I, 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 I'm glad. I'm glad there's one of us who can, who can really ride for a song like that. It's not it's honestly like I, as happy as I am that we had out of the woods. It is the one that I was like for months and months leading up to our show. I was like, please play how you get the girl. Please play how you get the girl. I need to scream this in a stadium. I need to scream it. So just to kind of framework where I'm at with that particular song. That checks. The other kind of weird reason why I guess it's it, it's sort of a little bit weird for me to experience in the album is that it is not just that it comes after wildest dreams uh, yeah so that, yeah, it, that, that it is like weirdly cleft between that song and one of the other songs in the record that oh boy 
I was a fucking miss. Listening. Underrated song. Weirdly enough, this is one of those songs where before I revisited the album, I was like, this love. I don't think I know this one very well. And then I heard it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this song. Um, I don't yeah, know where I know it same. from or whether I just remember from when I listened to the album as a teenager, but um, I recognized it. And um, my God, I was not prepared for, I mean, and the other reason why I kind of wish How You Get the Girl wasn't in between them is that this there's literally a lyrical reference to Wildest Dreams in this song that would have tied the two together perfectly. Yeah. I'm done complaining about that. Um, this song is, you know, it's maybe not the most emotionally huge song on the record for me. That's always going to be Wildest Dreams. But my God, if I wasn't in floods of tears listening to this this week, it's like you don't expect an acoustic ballad on an album like this. And you certainly don't expect it to work as well as it does. I certainly wasn't anyway. I, I didn't even know I needed it when I was listening to this, but it's just sold so well. Her vocal performance is just, you know, it's heartbreaking. And again, it's like, it's not a, well, it kind of is a downer. It kind of feels like a downer, but it fits with the records romanticism because it's actually a really beautiful song about the power of love. It's, but you know what I mean, right? Like it's, It's a song about how love can have a persistent healing effect, even when the object of that love isn't there, or or even when there's any some kind of uncertainty, or even when you're kind of waiting for someone and they're not there and whatever, but that the love just persists and is like a lifeboat that you cling to. And, you know, it's like um you could read the song as really, really sad and it makes me really, really emotional, but I think it's a beautiful and kind of on balance quite uplifting song um you know especially with its like ending on the this love came back to me at the very end you know sort of reinforcing that that it's like yeah there's uncertainty in the song you know literally with the dichotomy of the love is good the love is bad but ultimately it's something that keeps you going for better or worse you know it left a permanent mark ah no way (laughs) No way I can talk about this without sounding a little bit trite because it's, you know, it is a little bit of a, of a, you know, kind of cheesy love song on some levels, but like, it just, it's perfect. It's the perfect iteration of what this kind of song is, you know, this sort of wistful acoustic ballad. I think it's one of the things that bothers me when I hear people say that Taylor's voice isn't really in it in this re-recording. Oh like, yeah. She sounds amazing on the newer version. I'm like I feel more emotion on this one than I did previously I feel like so I don't know maybe maybe that's just me but mm-hmm. yeah this is one of those songs where I think age and experience makes her able to sell it even better you know it's one of those songs- more dexterous here yeah it's one of the things me and one of my Swifty friends were talking about the other day is that like you can really tell on this that like she is able to do a lot more vocally than she could then she's able to recognize like how much growth she has had over the years and is able to kind of put that to really good use on songs like this love where like she's able to perform it in a way that she couldn't before. There's like, uh, there's, and there's something about this song as well. Maybe it's just because Taylor has so many breakup songs where it's like, there's this sort of, you know, a darker, unpleasant tone to it. 
um, because of the nature of the breakup or the nature of the relationship or the way things soured that I'm so used to, and, and maybe that's unfair to some degree, but I'm used to hearing Taylor songs about relationships that are over or that aren't like present as, as in this song that kind of have this sort of darker side to them. Certainly doesn't help that the lion's share of the vault tracks on this record are pretty from that place. But um, there's something I love about the song. It's so grown up and so adult. <laughs> Again, it's kind of a, it's a cliche, right? If you love something, let it go. Right. But, but writing about the truth underlying that, which is that sometimes part of love is surrendering the love or or acknowledging that you know it's it's not maybe necessarily going to work forever um it's going to leave a mark on you forever which is again of course what wildest dreams is about but it's and it can be a really really sad thing it can really really heartbreaking thing but it can also be a really really beautiful thing and this is a hard this is not an easy concept to talk about but it's just and it, not everyone's going to have this experience with relationships but for me sometimes a relationship ending like a really good long relationship ending can sometimes be a really beautiful thing especially if it ends because the two of you are going your own separate ways to kind of realize yourself in a bigger way um that's not to get all autobiographical but that's pretty much how i feel about my last long relationship is that it ended because it had to because we were both heading in different directions and it was sad but it was also beautiful and kind of you know life affirming in a weird way and, you know, I get that feeling from this as well. The love, you know, provided the relationship doesn't end in a, in a you know, in a sad or in a kind of, you know, unpleasant way, the love does stay with you. And the love is a continual source to of comfort for you throughout your life, even if it's a love of someone that's gone or, it's, you know, that, that that sort of love in some form stays with you forever because how could it not? And I'm not the kind of person who, typically likes to read into artists lives you know and real life relationships and things like that but listening to it this week it was kind of hard not to think of the fact that you know taylor was until somewhat recently in a very long-term relationship that kind of you know and, and i have to wonder how it felt re-recording this song in particular which to me is so much about the long-term lingering effects of of, of a really good strong beautiful love that doesn't always last and like, that was part of what got me really emotional is because i feel like and again i'm totally projecting but i feel like on some degree taylor probably understands in a similar way to how i do what it feels like to let go of of someone you've been with for a very long time who is a really huge and important part of your life but it just isn't meant to be any longer sorry i got way deeper on that than i meant to but um if i'm going to be truthful about my experience with the song this week then those are the things i thought about anyway i know places i'm not huge on this one it's a good song again i said earlier i feel like that out of the woods kind of renders it a little bit redundant but there's also a kind of darkness to it in terms of like the, you know the running from the paparazzi thing that i feel like is slightly out of sync with the romanticized sort of perfection of the album but maybe that's the point I'll tell you one thing I do like. I like the um, weirdly doomy sort of minor key chords over the the verses. Like it sounds like it's really portentous and dark. And I don't like the way that that completely deflates on the chorus. <laughs> but, you know, there's things I like, there's things I don't like. I, I think it's one of those things where it's like it's a good song that I wouldn't have put on the album because of tonal reasons as opposed to quality reasons. But, you know. I think the way that I wrote what I think it's about or how I like connect with it 
makes a lot of difference into how much I love it. Looking at it from a queer perspective makes it hit a little different for me in a way that makes me absolutely just love it beyond words. Gaylor mentioned. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, it has a special place in my heart for many reasons. That's one of them. There is a lot to be said about my coming to terms with my sexuality and like connecting that with a bunch of Taylor Swift songs. And I think it's one, it's on the list of ones that put things in a perspective for me that's like kind of different. The growl that she does in the Taylor's version had me foaming at the mouth at like 1230 in the morning. And I just, I'm sorry. Mm. It's, it's a good sound. It's, it's, the, it's um, not- the thing I'll say like, and this is, like, I suppose, a, as good a moment as any to address the whole controversy with, which is so stupid to my to me of like reading songs by you know cis hit artists through a queer lens or whatever or look the thing there's a difference and some and most people know this I'm only talking to the people who don't there's a difference between having a queer interpretation of a song written by a cis hit person and deciding that this song by the cis hit person is secretly about their hidden queer experience or whatever. You know what I mean? Like reading the song as if it's like a coded way of saying, you know, this is something about me that I can't say properly. Uh, I think that is in most instances, if not always, you know, a deeply problematic and, and unfair thing to do. But it's not the same as saying this song can have a queer reading, right? It's not the same thing at all. Loads of of great pop songs or otherwise written by cishet straight people can have a queer reading right and there's nothing wrong with that people interpret and read songs because they're it's art right you read it through your own lens you interpret it in your own way it doesn't mean that your interpretation is not valid because it's less likely to be how the artist wrote it that doesn't matter you know it doesn't matter what the artist was writing it about and that doesn't make your reading of it less valid or whatever it's like it's, it's a song and it's what it is what it means to you is what it is that's how songs work you kind of compared this to Out of the Woods, which is a song that I also kind of see could also be heavily skewed in that direction, frankly. Just just the idea of having to hide yourself with the person that you care about is like, that's a distinctly quite queer experience to have, exactly. especially when you're you know of a certain age and questioning your sexuality and maybe even you don't know how you feel about something or somebody. And like, it's just, there are lots of experiences on here that I feel like are more often than not more easily able to be read through a queer lens than, you know, other songs or other albums that she's had, for instance. Uh, But that's, I mean, there is, there is a reason why there is a large subsection of Taylor Swift fans that do, you know, heavily lean into these things it's because like the 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 text is there you can like there is a relatable sentiment at the core of this that is distinctly going to speak to a certain subsection of people and regardless of the intent with which it's written it's it's it it, it is a testament to the text's richness that you can find that at all frankly this is the whole point of pop music right is that's universal music it is music that is designed to have a level of appeal that is as wide as possible and part of that means that the ambiguity of how you can interpret it you know is going to be 
melded into the lives of millions of people and the experiences of millions of people in loads of different ways. And that's always been kind of part of what pop music is about. And, you know, as, you know, queer sexuality, queer identities and the queer experiences become more and more of a part of pop culture, those interpretations have become more and more, you know, mainstream. And, you know, and that's normal. That's healthy. That's part of what pop music is. And also like, you know, if Taylor did write it about, as it appears to be about, you know, getting away from the paparazzi, about trying to kind of exist outside of the the assault of, of constant, you know, judgment and perception and, you know, uh, surveillance, you know, that's a, a real and true experience to her. That's a, a, a true and real struggle to her. It doesn't need to be like compared to or, you know, held up as, in some kind of struggle Olympics with, with any kind of queer struggle, right? It's just, it's her struggle. It may in some ways share a parallel with uh, you know, with the queer experience, but that doesn't mean they need to be kind of compared in terms of, you know, which is a realer struggle. It's just, no, it doesn't matter. It's just Taylor's writing about her life. Clean, though. Clean by Taylor Swift. This, um, hmm. I mean, it's the best Taylor Swift closing track, I would say. Uh, is there any controversy about that? Is that a consensus opinion? I'm, I'm going to look real quick and um, see about that because i might agree it's a stunning end to the record because it ends this massively loud and ostentatious album in a very minimal and sort of low-key fashion without making that feel like a letdown in any way it's kind of amazing how well it works for what it actually is on this album i love songs that are able to be immensely cathartic while being so skeletal and minimal. Like there's so much space in the song for you to just focus in on all the little details of it, the little glitches of the beat, the, um, you know, the twinkling little melody that it has, the intimacy of Taylor's voice in this compared to some of the more kind of processed, you know, maximal, you know, vocal treatments on the record. It's a beautiful come down from a, an album that's very intense and in your and in your face and just sort of like you know popping off and colors and and lights and and you know and rainbows and fireworks and all this kind of stuff you know all these sort of sensory explosive things that the album gives you to just end on this moment of of calm and of healing it's a very beautiful song it it really is and like there's um there's actually one moment that i think most Taylor Swift fans like remember when they think about this song is that I believe it was one year exactly after she um, won her sexual assault case she mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure did it as like the surprise song at the show that she did that day and it was this year this is during like reputation tour I think and I think it was like the first time that she really like publicly spoke about it and like talked about how much it meant to her and like how much she empathized with people that didn't get the gratification that she did that didn't get to win that didn't get to see an end to what she dealt with and just put that in the framework of a song that wasn't necessarily written about that moment but being able to like reapply that to a whole another chapter of her life and kind of explain like I see you and I know that I'm privileged because I was able to say something I was able to put myself out there with this and some people can't and I I can see that and then she just kind of goes into playing it and it's she plays plays it on the piano and it's just it's very beautiful there's clips of it everywhere online if you haven't seen it I highly recommend it because it's just it's if this song already gives you 
feels that video will double that. It's a nice like reminder of the fact that you know songs are both snapshots of time, but also living things that age and gain new contexts and hit different is I guess the best way of putting it um <laughs> you know over time and I'd forgotten about that the 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 sexual assault um thing and then the the significance of playing the song I, I remember reading it but thank you for reminding me of that because yeah that did add a whole level of depth to it and you know it's I, and I've seen on multiple occasions with like Bad Blood and I know places that I, they kind of feel out of place because they hinted a darkness that the rest of the album seems to be all about ignoring but the thing with clean is that it's the last song on the album right it is the coming down to earth after all of this those other songs kind of don't quite work in an album context for me because they disrupt the vibe the record is going for but but clean is like you know it's a coming down to earth and it's a positive song right it alludes to darkness but it is a an empowering song and an empathetic song, as you say, and a song that allows you to find catharsis and to find closure from it, you know, and it's, you know, it's got the darkest lyric on the whole album, I would say, which is, you know, the water filled my lungs. I screamed so loud, but no one heard a thing. That's way darker than, than Taylor yeah. gets on the rest of this record. Yeah. But apart from that, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, it's obviously easy to see why it's clean, clean because it is a cleansing song. It is a song about having all of the shit, just feeling it all wash away after so much time. You know, for, for this album, so much of it is a fantasy. So much of it is, is a, a romantic kind of escape that maybe suggests a an ugly reality that you don't want, want to be a part of. But then it's like coming back down to earth and just feeling fine, you know, feeling as though you're healed and you're cleansed and you're um, free of the shit that you maybe were initially trying to escape or trying to hide from. And it's like, it's an, it's the idea that, you know, even when you wake up from a beautiful dream, it doesn't have to be hell. You can just be, feel grateful to be alive and feel grateful to have survived all the shit that you've survived and um, be aware and, it, and where you are and at that particular place at that moment in time breathing um yeah and obviously shout out image and heap i think one of the coolest and most creative yes. uh, artists of the 2000s um it's really awesome that that taylor teamed up with her and that they collaborated on this not just sort of in terms of conceptualizing the song production wise but also her feature on the song uh her backing vocals are very powerful in both versions and they're especially accentuated in the new version and the, the 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 gentle crest that the song has like the 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 slow the sort of build that it has the final chorus is just so powerful without like being over the top again because it would feel false or wrong if it was if it, they lent into it too hard but it's just like it's just enough to feel like an extra kicker but let's pick up like from the, the that downbeatness of that and just real quick talk about first of all the bonus tracks all three of which are fucking amazing can I just say that? They're fucking yes. amazing. Please say it louder. I'm so fucking mad at myself for never listening to these songs. I don't know why I did. No reason. I listened to the album and I just never thought to listen to the bonus tracks. First of all, I tweeted this earlier this week as well. Why the fuck is Wonderland not on the album? Why the fuck is Wonderland not on the album? I don't okay. understand why Wonderland is not on the album, but Bad Blood is on the album. Make it make sense. 
because not just because Wonderland is a great song, but it's like perfect for this album. It's like it should be on there. I... Yeah, it's right in tune with with style and out of the woods. You know, it's yeah. got a slightly mm-hmm. darker Wonderland feel. Banger. It's got a slightly darker feel than those musically, but it just mm-hmm. is like. Oh, I love the fucking edge that it has, the just urgency that it has, you know, the way that it plays with, you know, obviously the, the Alice in Wonderland references as well, but the way that it plays with kind of like fantastical tropes to kind of, you know, extend the fantasy of the album. And it's just a fucking banger, man. Another song about driving as well. Can we, maybe that's why she left it off because you feel like she'd be hammering into it. <laughs> I don't know. That song's amazing. You are in love. Another song I fucking whipped to this week. Um, yeah. Holy shit, this song came out of nowhere for me. Again, I know that the 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 Swifty fans have had these three bonus tracks for, you know, nine years or whatever. And I'm just hearing these songs for the first time. That's on you. I can't imagine going nine years out listening to New Romantics. I was going to say, that's... But, oh, but we're going to go back to You Are In Love because that one is one that is like, I've always like enjoyed... But like for some reason over the last week it is just like skyrocketed for me and just like sobbing, crying, mental breakdown levels of like So Taylor's a great storyteller. That's we've been new, but like yeah. the way that it's like the momentum in the song. She just goes bang, yeah. bang, 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 detail, 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 detail. And like it's fragments and shit, but she goes so fast with them that you get like, it's a rush of images, right? Morning, his place, burnt toast, Sunday, you keep a shirt, he keeps his word, which is, by the way, an amazing line. And for once, you let go of your fears and your ghosts, one step, not much, but it's said enough. You kiss on sidewalks, you fight, then you talk. And one night he wakes, strange look in his face, pauses, says, you're my best friend. And you knew what it was. He was like, Bro, that just, what the fuck? Did that? Yeah, he's, she's fucking insane. That that shit was like, I was driving oh. as well. And I was like, and, and and I was driving as well. And the song like kind of stops a little bit for the, you know, you're my best friend. And you know what it was? He is in love. And I was like, nah. It's the like, epitome of she was insane for this. Yeah. <laughs> Just, oh, and I love how understated the chorus is. Like you can hear it in the silence. You can feel it on the way home. It's like, it's so, it's not, there's no urgency to this at all. It's completely opposite of Wonderland, but it's like in tune with the, you know, you know, romance and love and all that sort of stuff for the rest of the album. So it works, but just, I think this legit is one of her top five love songs that she's ever written that I've heard. I'm I'm still trying to wrap my mind around like going nine years out hearing any of these songs. Well, actually, I think I probably did hear New Romantics like Mm -hmm. casually, but I don't think I ever like, I I, I don't remember listening to the bonus tracks of my own volition, but I knew people who were so entertained at that time. So I probably did hear all of these and just never really registered them. Um, but yeah, New Romantics is great too. It's I, I I like the other two a little bit more. This is kind of a little bit like 1989 tight beats. You know, it's it's just all the tropes of the album kind of just being, you know, again and again and again. And it's good because those tropes are good and the song's a banger. Um, so, you know, it, it, it rules. Um, the best people in life are free is a great line too. Like it's just that's, <laughs> that's one of many very smart little like subversions of... Uh, of a cliche or of a like a of a proverb or whatever like there's that line on um shit is it i know places or is it this love it's one of those songs it might be this love actually where she's like she does a mixed metaphor and i absolutely love it because it makes no sense but it mixes metaphors in a way that i really like as a as a writer oh yeah losing grip on sinking ships that's like 
uh, on this love. That's like a, a great little, she has a few different you know, things where she takes a, a saying and she just kind of twists it in some way. And that's a one I love because it's like, it, it, you know, loose lips sink ships, which I know is in uh, I know places. And that's why I was getting the two mixed up, but also mixing loose lips sink ships with losing grip on sinking ships. It's just like, that's as a, as a kind of writer, so to speak, that's a, I love that kind of, love that kind of shit, but yeah, new romantics banger. Um, I can see why this is, a, was not on the album as much like, uh, more so than the other two, but they're all great. I feel like I've taken the lead on a lot of these songs, so I kind of want to surrender to the two of you now with these vault tracks, especially you, Re, as a kind of fan, because you would have been the one, you know, you would have been rabid to hear these, I'm sure. Um, what are your take on the vault tracks on this record? Kind of like how you're like, I, I you couldn't believe that you didn't hear those three songs. I'm like, why the fuck haven't I heard these until now? I am happy with them. I am surprised, I think, because I think with like with Slut, for example, I was expecting something like blank space level, mm. which not to say that it's not, because I think it's and she even said like when she was writing the album, she had to pick between blank space, blank space and slut. Like mm. she could only have one of them on the album. So obviously she wanted blank space. Yeah, fair enough. But like I was expecting something way different than it to be this. A love song that makes you go oh shit okay slut to me is kind of just like uh i'm just gonna be honest i think it's worse blank space uh, i can see why she picked blank space over this it's kind of got some similar ideas you know public perception of a relationship and how taylor's categorized and kind of just sort of leaning into that saying well fuck it you know what you're gonna call me that shit it's worth it because i'm having a good fucking time and to me i just think that blank space is a better written and more memorable song um and so i kind of get why slut was sort of buried but I'll, i will say to be fair slut is my least favorite of the vault tracks i think the other ones are a little better even if and again i i realize i might be wandering into a minefield here are all the other vault songs about harry styles because they kind of sound like they are <laughs> i don't want to assume though I, a lot of the time i have to look at genius and i don't know if i can trust genius you can't none of he was 18 when they were together for like three months. I just, I'm sorry, but. Okay. I, I just, that's why. I someone that you. is like in my mid twenties, <laughs> no one is going to care that much about an 18 year old. Uh, that's just... not what I'm like concerned about. Like, I don't know. I didn't give a shit about that. I'm just like, I see why these are in the vault because none of them would fit on 1989 at all because right. they're songs about a, a relationship that went bad or a relationship that's in a space that's unhealthy or, you know, we don't talk anymore. Isn't that actually one yeah, of Yeah, they're very much less of like the romanticizing and the fantasy. But I'm like, as a as a, as a Taylor Swift enjoyer, I'm like, man, I, I could have been streaming these for so long. I like the line on now that we don't talk about not having to pretend she likes acid like, rock. Acid rock is my favorite. <laughs> that really made me laugh. That came out of fucking nowhere when I was listening to this. I was like, wait, what? I don't have any like specifications on who I think any of them are about. Just they're not about Harry Styles. I think that's the stupidest of all the fan theories, but that's for that's another conversation that's not meant to be had with this because this is about her music and not yeah. people being fucking weirdos um, i just have to say I, I always find it really amusing when i am on the genius page and i click on an annotation like the acid rock one and it's like 
In 2018, Harry Styles covered The Doors at a concert. Uh, the Doors are a well-known psychedelic rock band for uh, where in which Jim Morrison frequently wrote about his use of acid. Uh, therefore, Taylor Swift is, is talking about Harry Styles playing acid rock music to her. And I'm just like, I love the... I love Every the- element of that is a reach. Yeah. <laughs> no, or, I think um, now... The, the line about being on a mega yacht and it's like we can very much conclude the song is about taylor's ex-boyfriend harry styles because he was photographed on a yacht several years ago like a rich person was on a yacht after they were rumored to be dating uh, <laughs> yeah taylor, uh, harry styles was photographed on this yacht with taylor's then on the yacht's friend carly Kloss. therefore the song was about i'm like dude no, we're not you. mentioning carly Kloss in this she's a zionist and fuck her <laughs> anyway um i will say that i'm a little there's the song suburban legends has some lyrics i really like uh even if the song itself is not as musically i suppose good as i want it to be um mm-hmm. there's some really good lyrics in the song you were so magnetic it was almost obnoxious flush with the currency yeah. of cool i was always turning out my empty pockets there's some great um you had people who called you on unmarked numbers in my peripheral vision and uh, you'd be more than a chapter in my old diaries with the pages ripped out i'm standing in a 50s gymnasium and i can still see you now you kiss me in a way that's going to screw me up forever is a great lyric that would be even better if she just said fuck instead of screw. Yeah, that's that, one thing that's, go ahead. That's, I was going to say, that set of lyrics sounds like it's straight off of Sleep Well Beast by the National, but. Well, yeah, the gym line is like. <laughs> There's um, always arguments on online about whether or not Taylor's vault tracks were actually written in the era that the album was written in. And I think that's a lot of shit. Mm. But a lot of people are like, she could have said the fuck word here and she didn't. How else, what other proof do you need that this was written during the 1989 era? Because if she would have written it at any other point, she would have said fuck. Yeah. She has since. She would. She does not care. I love the word fuck. She likes saying the word fuck. It's cool. Even it's if it. they were written in the 1989 era, since they haven't seen the light of day, she can change whatever she wants, you know? That's true. Yeah, like, it, it's. It, I think it's just proof that this is very, like, organic and, like, she's just, like, this is something that I made that like I am so proud of and I want you to hear it mm. even if it's not how I would write it now um, um and my favorite lyric on this song I think my favorite lyric on any of the vault tracks is I broke my own heart because you were too polite to do it that's a kicker Ooh, yeah that's, that's cutting. that's a real kicker um I wish I liked the song overall a bit more but it's um got some really good lyricism again this is the sort of lyricism that I associate with other eras of taylor more than this era because you yeah. know she's deliberately turning it back and i think i don't know I, this feels like the consensus that is it over now is the best of them i, I don't know i like, that one. Uh, I like I, it it's not my favorite but I, I i like it it's good it's fun um, it pops in a way that the ones before it don't really pop um yeah i, I don't know i see i was saying this to jake earlier i feel like my opinion personally is that this is the weakest batch of vault tracks yet that we've received um relatively speaking it's not like by a huge margin but i don't i'll put it this way i'm probably not gonna listen to slut or say don't go or now that we don't talk again if i'm brutally honest maybe i'll listen to that one more time i don't know me it's like yeah, the o- the only vault tracks i really think about returning to are honestly the ones on red like, I think that the other ones are interesting and novel and I enjoy them, but those are the only ones where I felt like they were kind of essential. And also the thing with the vault tracks as well is that sometimes you're fairly like fatigued by the time you get to them as well. Yeah. 
they're they're not like a part of the album experience for me, even as a Taylor's version. But they look again; they're always nice to have for the fans who want more Taylor, and mm. none of them are bad. Um, but it's just easy to see why they are vault tracks. But yeah, like I said with um, Suburban Legends, that song has so many great lyrics on it that it's like it's worth having just for those. Uh, oh yeah, I like the line about having. I had the fantasy that maybe our mismatched star signs would surprise the whole school. That's just like that's a great like teenage mindset lyric. I just it's cringy. It's a very cringy teenage girl in her twenties thing to say. I would say yeah. it, and I I appreciate it. I can't lie. I had a fucking blast revisiting this this week. I am completely 1989 pilled. Um, <laughs> there are, you know, a couple of tiny things that I do think are, are fl- flaws or weaknesses of the album. I think if you specifically, I don't think I outright said this, but if you specifically replace Bare Blood with Wonderland, I feel like the album goes up several orders of magnitude, uh, in my opinion. But, you know, it's still a you can still listen to the song, so who cares? Uh, it's a great record. It's Taylor Swift firmly entrenched in her imperial era, and it's hard not to be, you know, swept up in it. It's hard not to be kind of won over by the charm of it. And though it didn't have this at the time, I think retrospectively, it works in a in a very interesting dichotomy with reputation which is like in every way, shape or form, kind of the inverse dark side of this album. This album is so much, you know, fantasy. And that album is so much kind of like gritty reality that to me, there's an inescapable like duality between those two albums. I'm not going to say any more on it now. We will get to that when we get to it. But having that kind of dichotomy between those two records has, I think, kind of really enriched to me what this album is and made me kind of appreciate it even more. Um, it's such a unique album for Taylor. She doesn't really have any other albums like this. Um, and it doesn't seem like she will again. She seems quite firmly in this more minimalist space now. So uh, as the more time goes on, you know, almost 10 years on, the more grateful I feel like we should be for this album because it is such a a stellar, you know, magnificent sort of incandescent record and a complete outlier for Taylor. You know, it's very interesting to me that you talk about the duality of 1989 and reputation because uh, when it comes to duality with reputation, it's mostly talked about with reputation and lover. It's really interesting to think of it on the opposite end because I always kind of contextualize it with, with lover just for a couple of different reasons, but we'll we'll get there at another point. But yeah, that's uh, I appreciate that outlook because that I never thought about it that way. Well, reputation is what happens when you can't shake it off, right? Like, like... Let us know what you think of the new re-release of Taylor Swift's 1989 Taylor's version. What does the album mean to you? What do the songs mean to you? Uh, where would you rank it in your Taylor Swift album ranking? What do you think of our conversation or your, of our thoughts? Let us know in the comments below. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to support the channel directly for just $1 a month, you can hit the join button, become a member of the Jams and D family, get yourself Get your name and the title crawl of everybody on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to talk about in one of our now episodes, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. Until next time, though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago. Levi's quality never goes out of style.